The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So what is dual covenant theology and why is it so misguided? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown, the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, which means you've got Jewish-related questions. We will give you Jewish-related answers. So any Jewish-related question of any kind, by all means, give us a call, and it will be my joy to do my best to open things up for you, give explanation. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you'll notice that we are audio only. Audio only. Uh, I am in Tupelo, Mississippi at the American Family Radio Studios, uh, getting ready to speak at a marriage and family conference for American Family Association. So they are gracious enough to host me in their radio studios today. So everyone listening, podcast, radio, Sounds just the same. If you're watching, just remember I'm smiling. All right? Just remember the smile is here. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. And I will go to your calls oh, as we go on on the show. And I just, I just installed some new software here. Okay, great. I can actually see things with my software here. So good. I'll be able to process your calls just fine. 866-34-TRUTH. I want to do a little teaching first. A very important subject, one that you don't hear taught a lot in the church. Sometimes people believe this, but they don't say it out loud. Uh, Others are not familiar with the concept. So I want to explain what we call dual covenant theology. Dual covenant theology. So dual covenant theology is the teaching that Jews do not need Jesus in order to be saved, since they already have a covenant with God through Abraham and or Moses. And if they're faithful to the covenant, they can live and die in right relationship with God. This is dual covenant theology. I want to explain the error of that theology today. There are variations of dual covenant theology today, which either state that there is no need to evangelize the Jewish people, since they'll all be saved when Yeshua returns, or that state that the Jewish people can't be held responsible for rejecting him when he came. And, and dual covenant theology is common in, in liberal Christian circles and little by little in Christian Zionist circles, or I should say, and more and more in Christian Zionist circles. So again, dual covenant is saying there are two covenants. There's one covenant that God has with the Jewish people, and they can be right with God through that covenant. They don't need Jesus And then there is the covenant that God has made with the rest of the world through Jesus. So the Gentiles have to come through Jesus, but Jews have another way of being saved. This is an erroneous, dangerous theology. It may be well-intended, but it's absolutely erroneous. So why do people believe in dual covenant theology? Why why do they hold to it? So so there there are several reasons as to why people can go in in this direction. Uh, and, and they all come down 
to a love for the Jewish people that's not scripturally accurate. And for the most part, it's only Gentile Christians as opposed to Messianic Jews who hold to do covenant theology. Because here as Jewish believers, we know we got saved through Jesus. We know there's no other way of salvation outside of him. We want our people to believe. So interestingly, it is mainly Gentile Christians who hold to do covenant theology. So why do people hold to it? Some believers have a hard time with the concept of anyone being lost, in particular a religious Jew, and then by extension, any Jew. After all, they'd say, aren't Jews the chosen people? Some believers are so grieved by the history of Christian anti-Semitism that they feel embarrassed even to share the gospel with Jewish people. So, so they've over-repented. They, they have repented of the church's sins against the Jewish people in history, but now go into the other extreme and say, well, we, we don't want to share Jesus with them. And since the Holocaust, and in light of Euro- European Christianity's ugly history of anti-Semitism, which prepared the ground for the Holocaust, a new era of sensitivity has arisen in which is considered almost immoral to tell Jewish people that they need Jesus to be saved. This is why dual covenant theology has risen in recent decades. Um, also, some believers are moved by the beauty of Judaism and the power of Jewish tradition, and they believe that Jews have a valid way to God outside of Jesus, who they say is for the Gentiles and not the Jews. And, and then dual covenant theology can be an extreme reaction to the era of replacement theology or supersessionism that says the church has superseded Israel in God's purposes. The, the, the church has replaced Israel in God's purposes. So here's a quote that illustrates the point. God's covenant with the Jewish people endures forever. For centuries, Christians claim that their covenant with God replaced or superseded the Jewish covenant. We renounce this claim. So these are Christians renouncing replacement theology. Okay, good for that. We affirm that God is in covenant with both Jews and Christians. Tragically, the entrenched theology of supersessionism continues to influence Christian faith, worship, and practice, even though it has been repudiated by many Christian denominations and many Christians no longer accept it. Our recognition of the abiding validity of Judaism has implications for all aspects of Christian life. This was a statement by the Christian Scholars Group on Christian-Jewish Relations, uh, cited in the book by John Merkel, Faith Transformed. So, on the one hand, it's good they repent of replacement theology. It's good that they repent of the idea that God is through with Israel. It's bad that they say Jews simply need Judaism. They do not need to add Jesus to that. Um, and, and another reason that some, some hold to dual covenant theology is, is that it avoids the offense of the cross. This way you're kind of at peace with everybody. You have your way, we have our way, and it avoids the offense of the cross. So what are the dangers of dual covenant theology? Primary dangers are that, one, Jews would be given a false, assent, false sense of, of assurance of salvation. Hey, you're fine as is. Just practice Judaism. You don't need cleansing through the Messiah. Two, Christians won't share their faith with Jews. Why should we if Jews can be saved just by living as faithful Jews? And three, Jewish believers in Yeshua will be ostracized by the church and criticized for being proselytizers and for, quote, target, targeting Jews. It's fascinating that over the years when you have interfaith dialogue, Christians and Jews sitting together, the ones that normally get excluded are Messianic Jews. In other words, the ones like Paul, Peter, John, Matthew. We are the ones that get excluded because we mess everything up. 
Because we're saying we're Jews and we found God through Jesus and we believe he's the only way for anyone to find God. And, and then the return of Yeshua will potentially be delayed. This is a danger of dual covenant theology because Israel will not be called to repent and to welcome back the Messiah. So why do, why do people hold to this biblically? I've talked about emotionally and reacting to church history. But, but why would, would people hold to this? What are some of their errors? Well, they would say God made everlasting promises to Abraham and gave an everlasting covenant to Moses, so that, that can never be altered. And there's some truth to that and some error in that. Uh, some would say, well, the Bible says all Israel will be saved. In the future, it's just going to happen. I, I talked to some Christian Zionists last year. I was shocked. I said, when do you share your faith with the rabbis? They said, we don't. Do you believe they need Jesus? Yes, but in the end, they'll just be saved. It's like this automatic thing that's going to happen. I, I was mortified to hear it. Uh, Romans eleven sixteen has been misinterpreted. If the branches are holy, the root also is holy. So if, if the root is, is, is holy, uh, excuse me, I said that backwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. So if the Jewish root is holy, then all the branches are holy. And by implication, if you're Jew, then you have your own way to God. Again, these are some of the wrong ways of thinking. So how do we respond to dual covenant theology? And obviously I could teach this over a period of hours. I'm just condensing it to a few minutes, and then we'll take your Jewish-related calls, 866-348-7884. So... What's a biblical answer to dual covenant theology? One, if, if Yeshua is not the Messiah of Israel, he's the Messiah of no one. Remember, he didn't come just as the Savior of the world. He came as the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world because he's the Messiah of Israel. If he's not the Messiah of Israel, when, when he, he came as the fulfillment of what's written in Moses and the prophets, if he's not the fulfillment of that, then he doesn't save anybody. He's only the Savior of the world because he's first and foremost the Messiah of Israel. Secondly, the gospel's to the Jew first. Who changed that? Romans 1.16, who changed that? Who, who took that out of the Bible? Who said that no longer applies? The gospel's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. Third issue is that no one can be saved by the works of the law, and there is no atonement for the Jewish people outside of Yeshua's blood. There was an atonement system set up for Israel. And, and absent of that atonement system, there was no forgiveness of sins. And that atonement system ultimately was imperfect, pointing to the perfect sacrifice. It was imperfect in that it had to be repeated year in and year out. Not only so, we can think about the reality of the divine judgment on the Jewish people in the first century because of the rejection of Jesus. Why was the temple destroyed? Why were our people scattered in judgment? It's because we rejected the Messiah. In previous generations, we rejected the law of Moses. We rejected the Messiah. And then uh, we rejected the prophets. And, and then we rejected the Messiah. So judgment came. If, if we didn't need Jesus, if we could be saved outside of him, then why judgment on a whole generation for rejecting him? Also, an, another rebuttal to replacement theology is the consistent testimony of the book of Acts calling for Jewish repentance and speaking of Jewish guilt. Why didn't they tell their people, hey, you're good, just be faithful to the Torah, we'll go to the Gentiles. No, who did they preach to? Their people. And they told them, you need to repent and put your trust in Jesus the Messiah. And they warned those who don't listen to the last great prophet, Jesus, will be cut off. And read, that, read Acts 2, read Acts 3. 
just read through all the sermons to the Jewish people in the book of Acts. Do we know better than the apostles? Did God change things because of of bad aspects of church history? Um, Also, why was Paul's heart broken? In Romans 9, why was his heart broken for his people? Why did he wish he could be cut off for the sake of his brothers and sisters who were now lost and outside of God's grace because they rejected the Messiah? If all they had to do was observe the Torah, if he could save his people, they're zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. They sought righteousness by observing the law, but fell short. If you get in just by observing the law and being a faithful Jew, why was he grieved for it? Why was he broken for it? Why did he wish that he himself could be cut off for the Messiah? And then there's the testimony of a multitude of Jewish believers around the world, like me. Salvation for the Jewish people is through the Messiah, just like salvation for the Gentiles. Do not withhold the good news of the gospel from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We'll be right back with your calls. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. That beautiful Hebrew singing reminds us it is thoroughly Jewish Thursday 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. All Jewish-related questions warmly welcomed on our Thursday broadcast. Again, for those watching, we are audio-only today. So radio, YouTube, Facebook, you hear me the same, but watching, you have to picture the smiling face. Okay, we go to the phone starting in Rogers, Arkansas. Lana, welcome to the Line of Fire. Shalom, doctor. Shalom. I had you on speaker, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, my question is regarding the heavens. Um, I know in my reading that there's at least three heavens, and as above, so below. So in just observing, I believe that earth is the first hell. And because so above, so below, so I... Because of all the suffering that everyone that I know has gone through on this earth, I feel that the earth is the first hell. Yeah, Lana, uh, obviously you've, you've encountered pain in your own life and seen many people close to you suffer, and you know, it's evident in, in, in the sound of your voice and the, 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 the tears. Uh, theologically, though, uh, I, have to, I have to differ for, for a number of reasons. So, so let me explain. Number one, when the Bible speaks of third heaven, Paul references it in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, or in Ephesians 6, spiritual warfare in, in, in heavenly places. So we would understand by that concept that you have the, the physical realm here, so physical earth and the air above us would be the first heaven. And then the second heaven would be the, the realm, the, the spiritual realm of the battle with demons and angels. And then the, the third heaven... <laughs> would be where God dwells. There are other ancient Jewish conceptions that there were seven heavens and things like that. But with three heavens, that would be the understanding. The earth is the earth. And the earth was the place where we're to be fruitful, multiply. The earth is not hell. And when you reference as it is in heaven, so it is below, that, it's, it's actually a, a misquotation. You took kind of a thought 
from the Bible and, and then changed it, its, its actual meaning. So we can often do that. We hear things and we think it's biblical. But the earth is the place where we come to know God by faith. The earth is a place of great blessing and also of great pain. God's destiny for the earth is that it will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the Lord has covered the sea, that there'll be no war, that there'll be no pain, and that ultimately there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, but this earth is not hell. This earth is a place of pain and testing, but, but hell is a place of, of judgment from which there is no way out, there is no redemption, there is no second chance. So it is true that many people have hellish experiences here in this earth, but this is the place where by God's grace, we can come to know him. By God's grace, we can, we can grow in the midst of the hardship. In fact, Scripture often speaks of growing through hardship, growing through tribulation. So look at it like this. What Satan means for evil to destroy us and to torment us, God can turn around and use for good that we can learn of him and receive more of his grace. May, may his grace be there uh, in your life and the lives of those that you care for who are suffering. May, may you experience his goodness in, in the midst of the pain. Hey, hey, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to AJ in Somerville, South Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you. I have a hot topic question for you um, on the Divine Council. Um, My understanding is Jewish thought is, uh, in Jewish thought, there is this repetitive nature throughout Scripture that connects the Old Testament with the New Testament, going back to the Old Testament, and I call it circle theology because I don't know what else to call it. Um, So I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. So I was wondering, um, is there a connection between the Divine Council and Moses' father-in-law makes a suggestion in the wilderness saying, hey, um, take you know, your top people in each tribe and um, to place as judges, you know, judges over the tribes in, while you're in the wilderness. And then in Timothy, Paul talks about the church structure and appointing leaders over the church. So I was just wondering if this is kind of the same thing, um, that kind of repetitive nature of the Bible and Scripture. Um, if there, I just wondered if there was a connection there. there. There's certainly no connection between the concept of a divine council and Jethro's pragmatic advice in, in Exodus 18. Um, that's just pragmatism. That's just Jethro looking and saying to Moses, you need to learn to delegate. You're going you're gonna to wear yourself out. Um, as to the, tr- the structure of the early church, in many ways it did follow a synagogal pattern where you had elders appointed so that would have been something that they were familiar with, the concept. Now, of course, you had the concept of an elder in society. You know, for example, the, <clears throat> the, the Hebrew word for elder, zakain, uh, is related to the Hebrew word for beard, zakan. So it's a bearded one, an older one, you know, the same way that the, the concept of an elder in the New Testament is, would be related to like a gray-haired person. So, you know, you just haven't, you go to tribal culture in a remote part of Africa, and they've got a structure where elders are respected and honored. But in the synagogue particularly, you had elders who had a leadership role or an oversight role on some level. <clears throat> and now that's just being patterned in a similar way, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in the early church, but certainly unrelated to any type of divine counsel or Psalm 82 type of thought. It's just practical delegation 
and then something that became uh, you know, part of synagogue life and early church life. Uh, for sure, you did not have a, a one-man show. For sure, uh, the early church was not about one person doing everything. Uh, many of our churches today, we, we have what some of us call the sola pastora model, where the pastor does everything, that all responsibilities fall on the pastor, and the, the pastor's the one. I don't mean a church of eight people. I mean you got hundreds and hundreds of people, and they're expecting the pastor to come up with all the messages, the pastor to do all the visitation, the pastor to make sure the sick are being cared for, the pastor to make sure that the, the poor in the neighborhood are being fed, whereas the ideal role of the pastor is to be able to give himself to prayer in the Word and then give oversight to the flock through a team of elders. So, you know, those types of concepts, again, are just spiritual pragmatism. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always good to ask questions, but then you don't want to try to read things into texts that aren't there. Mm-hmm. Thank you, sir. You are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Let, let me just mention one thing uh, along the way, and then we'll get back to your calls. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation on the Hebrew word for healing, Rafa, I had a certain theory. And, you know, you're, you're, you, you have, you're writing a thesis because you have a theory. Either you want to learn something or you want to demonstrate something. You know, maybe you're doing research in, in clinical psychology and you want to see what type of responses you get to this versus this. So you're going to do a clinical study and you don't know what the results are going to be, and your, your dissertation is to publish the results of the study. This is what we learned through our study. In other, t- in other times, you're writing a thesis because you, you want to demonstrate something. You want to demonstrate a connection between this concept and that concept. You, you want to, to demonstrate some insight that you have, and, and now, you, now you're going to try to back it up. The problem is along the way, you might find that your theory is not accurate. Or you might find you have to nuance your theory, that it's, it's accurate in eight cases out of ten, but not all. So now you have to explain the exceptions. And what often happens is, and I know I was tempted to do this, was to, I had a certain theory, and, and now I was coming up to, to instances as I was tracing the root in, in ancient Aramaic, as I was tracing it in an ancient language called Ugaritic, as I was tracing it in, in other languages and, and later dialects and Semitic dialects, and did my theory hold true? Were there exceptions to my theory? If so, how could I explain those? Did my theory need adjusting? But I realized then, so this is in the 80s, I wrote my dissertation from 83 to 85, I realized that it's very easy to, to have an idea and, and now I'm going to twist something to make it fit. I mean, look, we, we do it with doctrine, that we're, we're preaching on a certain point or teaching on a certain point, and we've got 20 verses to support our point. And someone says, what about this verse? What about th- this translation here? And, and, and it's easy to try to now twist the meaning of that so it fits the rest of your 20 verses. Rather than saying, hmm, that's a good question. That seems to be a little different than the emphasis I'm making. That seems to be a little bit different than the point that I'm making. And I'm not sure how it fits. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to look at it afresh. Now, there are doctrines where I'm, I'm 100% sure, based on my understanding of Scripture, that, yes, I believe this, I hold to this, I don't question it at all. But I don't quite know, so I've got like 100 verses to support it. I, I don't quite know how that 
one verse over there fits in. So I'm not, I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to keep thinking about it. In other cases, when I look at it, it's like, ah, here's how they all fit. And in other cases, it's like, yeah, there's, I have a certain tension there because I see the overwhelming testimony of Scripture in this direction, but this, this one I'm not sure about. So, so I leave it until I can have better understanding rather than kind of twist the thing to fit some preconceived type of idea that I might have. Okay, on the other side of the break, I'm going to get back to your Jewish-related calls. Uh, things unfolding in Israel with the new government so far seems peacefully. I mean, the coalition is still together, what, a couple weeks in? So we shall see what happens. And um, as always, we want to be praying for the advancement of the gospel among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Again, we are audio only. Hey, I want to give a shout out to Yolanda, if you're listening, I met you yesterday, so Wednesday, at the Charlotte Airport over at Jamba Juice. Uh, came up to me and asked if I was Dr. Brown. You, you held up your cell phone, said I was just about to listen to your podcast. And you know what's, what's so meaningful to me when, when I hear that? And, and to each of you listening right now, I want to say this from my heart. I saw the other day online that there were two and a half million podcasts worldwide, and of course the great majority emanating from the United States. I know there's so many hours in a day, there's so much time that we have. So for you to choose to take time to listen to this broadcast, it it reminds me, not just before God, but as a steward in your life as well, that it It reminds me of the importance of every word we say. It reminds me of the importance of every broadcast, that that I want it to be worth your while to listen. Uh, It it may be key in your life in terms of help and encouragement, strength, equipping. It it may be something just at the right moment, at the right time is there, but but I take it as a sacred responsibility before God and, and want it to count for each of you. So thanks for listening. Thanks for praying for us. Thanks for supporting our work. All right, we go back to the phones, and let's go to Ricky in Bellevue, Nebraska. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for having me. Always sure thing. Enjoy, um, uh, getting able to call and ask you questions. Hey, so uh, background of this real quick is uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine today who is a believer, and at his job recently um, he was having a conversation with somebody about uh, the book of Esther. I don't know the, the whole context behind it, but basically um, the person he was talking to is a former minister and basically was claiming that the book of Esther is unhistorical, not reliable, anything like that. I don't know the back, his, his background on faith, if he's still a believer or not, but I thought that uh, I would ask you that question because I'm not sure if you, maybe in Jewish circles, have come across that argument before in regards to the book of Esther. Um, and I know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that 
we have portions, if not whole uh, portions of, of books from the Old Testament, except from the book of Esther. So I just thought I'd ask you and see if you've dealt with that objection at all. Yeah, so, so there are two different questions. One, was Esther always in, included in the canon of the Old Testament? That's one question. Second question, is Esther considered historically accurate by, by scholars? In other words, the reason that uh, the question comes up about Esther being part of the canon is not historical accuracy, but was it considered scripture? And specifically, God is never mentioned in, in the book of Esther. So it is true that there is no copy of, of Esther that was found uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you are right that you have a fragment. It could be even the tiniest fragment or some reference to every other biblical book. But remember, some are so small that there's always just the chance that, that they didn't have a lot of copies of Esther and what copies that were had were, were gone. But as far back as we can go, where you have discussion of, of canon of Scripture in Jewish circles, uh, Esther does play an important role. Uh, even the, the development of the holiday of Purim o- over the centuries, of course, that comes later, but obviously derived directly from Esther. So uh, it, there are some Christian canonical lists where there's a question about Esther, but overwhelmingly Esther has been received as part of the canon of Scripture in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible from the earliest times that there was discussion of a full canon. So uh, the fact that it's not found in, among the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is interesting but not, not of paramount importance. So the question that remains, if it is part of the Bible, uh, is it historically accurate? And uh, the answer would be that we have no historical records that refute it. Is there historical support for it that's debated? But we don't have historical records that refute it. So to be totally candid with you, Ricky, the way it boils down is that uh, Christians who are conservative in their faith and Jews who are traditional in their faith find adequate support and say there's no reason to question it historically. Those who are liberal and critical and read the Bible with more of a skeptical eye say uh, it's obviously not historical. In other words, we, we don't have sufficient data to prove it or refute it, so it pretty much falls down the lines of those who believe the Bible to be God's word say it's reliable, and those who don't see the Bible as God's word say it's not reliable. So this minister, if he was you know, a minister in the past preaching the Bible, he would have thought it was re- reliable, and now he doesn't. Um, it's not one of those things. Like there are a lot of things in the Old Testament we can verify, uh, you know, specific details we can verify. You know, David being a king in, in Israel or, or Israel worshiping idols or various things like that. Even, you know, people in exile in Babylon and, and data to support that. And so many things in the New Testament we can verify historically. We say, yeah, that's accurate. But this is one of those where it all depends on your presuppositions, to be honest. Uh, and, and if you're a believer and you read the arguments for it, you'll say that's convincing. And if you're not a believer, you'll say, I don't think so. So it's just, it's one of those things, and we don't have sufficient data to to argue it either way. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, just being totally candid on it. Now, again, let me just say this. The issue would be if all the evidence was against it, and nonetheless, we still believed it. If all the evidence said it's impossible, but we still believe it. In that case, we'd say, well, is it meant to be a parable? Is it a a lesson? Was Was it never meant to be taken literally? Uh, you know, that, that would be how we try to argue against it. But in this case, no, there is no definitive argument against it. The question is, how do we fit the names and the places? And, you know, 
which, which different way that that's read. Hey, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to our friend Manny in Brooklyn. Welcome back to the line of fire. Thanks for taking my call, Dr. Brown. Sure. So uh, if your audience will remember, uh, we had a discussion about uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter. You bet. Uh, we're, yeah. Um, I argued that uh, the coming of the Son of the Son of Man in his kingdom refers to the second coming. Uh, you argued it, it refers to the transfiguration that's brought down in the next chapter, proceeding in all the synoptic uh, accounts of this uh, verse. Um, I argued that your interpretation is ambiguous at best, and if I could quote you or paraphrase it, you said that your interpretation was God shouting out at us with a tremendous clarity. So I didn't have chance really to uh, bring any sufficient like reason totally why it's ambiguous, but uh, one of the things that struck me was you then went on to give me an alternative interpretation to this extremely, tremendously clear interpretation that you first gave. So. I think the fact that you gave me a second interpretation shows that your first one is not as, in, as unambiguous as you claim it is. When did I give you the second interpretation? Uh, during that same conversation, you uh, right. ended off saying that we have another interpretation that uh, Jesus. Right. In other words, we, we were ta- we were talking, correct? Mm-hmm. And you were you were questioning the interpretation, right? Yes. And I was saying others offer this interpretation. We're having a conversation. Right. So is and your... You said it's a plausible... You said it's a plausible... It's, it's, it's right, I, I don't see it as... Plausible. Right, so, so, here's, so here's the deal. Yeah. I think we should... So, so in my book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, which you're quoting, I am refuting counter-missionaries and rabbis... No, I'm, not I'm not quoting your book. I'm quoting a conversation you had with me. Uh-uh, where I said shouting. And, and where you also gave the alternative explanation. Got it, got so, it, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, do, I do believe, here, here's the deal. I do believe in the text uh, that because it's, it's all the same in Matthew 16 and uh, Mark 8 and Luke 9, uh, you know, Mark 8, then into uh, Mark 9 and, and, and Luke 9, uh, mm-hmm. that you have the identical account in each right. case followed by the exact same teaching, followed by the exact same event, which is almost, uh, it may be the only time in the Gospels you have this. Yeah, to me, God is right. shouting, here's, here's your answer. I'm telling you exactly what happened. Now, if you don't right. accept that, okay, there other, others have other views. So I, I do believe that it is being shouted out to us, and that is how I respond to counter-missionaries and, and rabbis and others challenging it. Uh, y- if you say, well, I don't accept that, it's like, well, uh, you should know that other scholars do see this alternative, but the plain reading of the text to me is, is very plain. Okay, that, that kind of seems like, you know, you're trying to, 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 like, I'm trying to have an honest conversation here, not bringing in opinions that you don't really think are true. Mm-hmm. I think I think you've also brought, I mean, I, I usually don't do that. I usually don't try to, I tr- usually try to stick with opinion and try to convince people of my opinion, because if it's not, then I should go with that, that alternative. But... You also argued by Haggai the second chapter when we had our discussion there that the fact that rabbinic commentators disagree with my position indicates that my uh, arguments for the meaning of the text is not un- unambiguous. And I think, therefore, if we look here, the fact that you have other people arguing, according to your own standards, it should be an ambiguous interpretation at best. Oh, no, no. Uh, just because you have... De- here, Manny... Uh, every page of the Talmud is differences of interpretation. 
and, and reading and of the it's law. Ambiguous. Uh, yeah, and it's ambiguous. So then the whole Bible is ambiguous. Every verse in the Bible is ambiguous. Is that unless so? You, that is you that your every every you, verse of the Bible is ambiguous, and every Talmudic ruling is ambiguous. Unless you don't respect uh, the opinions that argue. So, for example, I don't I don't think uh, when it says, let's say, uh, any verse that Jewish people and Christians argue, I don't I don't respect the Christian interpretations. So I don't say it's ambiguous. No, just the Jewish interpretations. So if I respect uh, the be, uh, verse, after verse, I after verse after verse after verse after okay. verse, verse after verse within yeah, within Torah, yeah. just within Torah, there are various Jewish interpretations. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm talking right. So then, based on your understanding, that every verse in Torah is ambiguous. No, because the question is of the commentator who argues. Do I agree with him or not? If I if I could see the point of view of two commentators that argue, then yeah, it's ambiguous. If if I could have two explanations for something and one and they're both plausible, and yes, it's ambiguous. If I if I can't say that's a flaw, that we have. All right, a, so, so you're saying that the greatest that that you're thinking trumps the greatest sages in Jewish history, the most revered rabbis. That if you don't find their interpretation plausible, then the verse is not ambiguous. So you're basically the arbiter of what's ambiguous or not. Yeah. And that's everyone is honestly. Yeah, all right, so so that right. So so bottom line versus unambiguous. Okay, to me it's unambiguous. You but, but Manny, the Christian commentators who were before you, whose people might uh, you know uh, give some more authority to than you're yourself. Yeah. And you were the judge, and you decided it's it's not unambiguous. But but Manny, as, as Manny, as all right. This is actually a bit of a silly call because we're not even talking about the text. In my view, it's unambiguous. In my as I understand it, God's shouting the answer to us. You don't accept that? Fine. Here's some other views others have, but to me, it's unambiguous. That's all. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Yeah, so, hey, look, if you ask me my view of a particular thing and I say it's, it's unambiguous, seems loud and clear from the text to me, here's what it says. Well, Dr. Brown don't see it like, well, others see it like this. Well, I'm telling you it seems very clear to me. So, you know, that's the whole realm of biblical scholarship. That's the whole realm of beliefs and just the way we live our lives. Certain things are, seem very clear to us. Others differ. Say, well, there are other ways to look at this, but here's the way I look at it, and here's why. That's the best we can do, right? All right, if you're just tuning in, referring back to the last call that I had. Okay, we go over to Sean in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown, how are you? Doing well, thanks. You don't have me on speakerphone, do you? No, I'm using my earbud. Okay, great, just being sure, thanks. Oh, no, 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 no. How are you doing today? Doing fine. Yeah, um, I listen to your program all the time, and there are so many times I do agree with you. Uh, but there's a, an issue that I've been trying to call about for some time now. It's got to do with the, the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if uh, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, you know, why do you keep saying that, uh, you know, uh, to the Jewish people, 
you know, because the way I <clears throat> the way I can conclude from what you've been saying is, you know, Jewish people are more special, you know, because I come from that background that I, I used to give out, you know, to the you know Jewish nation, you know, from the Old Testament. Think about, you know, if you're blessed, the Jewish people are going to be blessed back, you know. And I used to do that for a long time until, you know, my the scripture kind of opened my eyes to the fact that I'm idolizing the Jewish people, mm. uh, you know, you know. And uh, the example God gave me is the situation with Mary, you know, uh, Mary was chosen, but her being chosen does not make her, you know, somebody that people should be worshiping like the Catholic Church is watching. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, Sean, I'm, I'm yeah, 100% you know. with you that it's it's a terrible mistake to idolize the Jewish people yeah, or know, to look at danger. Israel as if it's some type of magic charm and if you just rub it, you get blessed. I mean, no, the, God the, forbid. The, every, and like I started the whole show today talking about the error of thinking that Jews had another way to be saved outside of Jesus. John 3.16 is about God's love for the whole world and salvation yeah. for Jew or Gentile comes through his son. And if you think of it, the Jewish people have suffered terribly over the centuries. You know, maybe worldwide we consist of 14, 15 million people, but we're just as ancient as India and China, and they have, you know, combined populations of close to a, to a billion and a half each of, you know, Indians and Chinese worldwide. So Jewish people have suffered through the ages. Genesis 12, 3 still is true, that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse, simply because he made a covenant promise to Israel, and, and Israel is associated with God on the earth. That remains true. But Jewish people without Jesus are lost. Jews are like everybody else, good qualities, bad qualities. And to idolize Jewish people or to look at them as if they're special is, is, is definitely a mistake. We're, so how, we do are, you, how do you, sorry, sorry to cut you short, but how do you reconcile uh, Zechariah 13, 8 and 9? How do you reconcile that with, you know, the New Testament, uh, I can't remember uh, which chapter, you know, which book, you know, that says uh, all Israel is going to be saved? You know, because those are two contradictions. Oh, you no, know, not, not at that, all. Not at all. At the end of the age, there'll be a national turning. Zechariah 13 may have applied to the first century when there was a terrible destruction of the Jewish people, uh, the first and second no, well, centuries. The, the prophecy, if, if you if, prophecy, if it, it's, it's talking about a lot of battle. Uh, it's it's uh, in the immediate context that relates also to a first century prophecy about smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, right? That that re- reply applied to, to Jesus and his, and his death. But even if it applies to the end of the age, Sean, even if it's saying that at the end of the age there'll be a tremendous purging and two out of three will perish, even if that's right, it is saying at the end of the age all those the Israel that remains will be saved. There will be a national turning. And, so you and the, think the, it's the, talking about Israel in general, as in uh, all the Israelites that are already in heaven. No, the, I can't you know, can't be. be can't be. That's completely contrary to the context. 100% contrary to the context of Romans 11 that says it's on the heels of uh, the fullness of the nations coming in. And so, in a culminating way, and then when you just keep reading the next verse, that the Messiah will come and turn godlessness away from Jacob. Yeah, but see, see that's verse 27. Comes, but if when Christ comes, you know, even all the saints in heaven, everybody's going to return to get dressed up for the wedding. 
but but Sean, it's not what the text is saying. It's not what the text is saying. It's ter- is there God? Is there godlessness, ungodliness in heaven right now? Are people sinning in no. heaven? Okay, no, it's talk. But so Sean, it's talking. It, it's talking about the fact that God will turn ungodliness from Jacob. Just read Romans eleven twenty seven. It's it's flatly plain. And then what about Romans eleven twenty eight? And see, Sean, you, you've sung from one extreme to the other, and just in candor, and embraced a theology that is contrary to Scripture. What does it say in Romans eleven twenty eight? That even though the Jewish people now are enemies of the gospel for your sake, meaning the gospel has gone to you as a Gentile because Jews have rejected the Messiah, they are loved by God because of the fathers. Why? Eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So God made promises to Israel. He keeps those promises. He made it to the fathers no matter what. And in the end of the age, what does Paul say? There's only a remnant now. But as Israel turns back, read Romans 11, 11 to the end of the chapter. Start reading there. Romans 11, 11. Read it from there to the end of the chapter. There's no question that Paul's talking about the future salvation of Israel. What's written in Jeremiah 31.1? At that time, God says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. So it seems, sir, that you have to find that happy balance of truth. You went from idolizing the Jews to now condemning the Jews, but there's a happy meeting of truth. Jews are like everyone else in terms of our nature. We do good, we do bad. Jews need Jesus to be saved like everyone else. Jews have suffered terribly by being the chosen people through the ages, yet at the end of the age there will be a national turning and all Israel will be saved. There are other verses that support it. Look at Zechariah 12 and the massive repentance that will take place with the return of the Messiah and the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem turning en masse. So that is going to happen, my brother. And I encourage you to pray for the salvation of Jewish people, but recognize that God has not cast them off and that he still wants us to recognize They have been chosen, even if under judgment, still chosen. Hey, thank you, my brother, for the call. We can continue to dialogue. But please take time. Get on your knees alone with the Lord. You obviously seem to be a God-fearing man. Romans 11. Start reading in verse 11. I mean, read earlier. And then out loud, say, God, what does this mean? Read it through till you get to the end of the chapter. Hey, I appreciate the call. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, see if we have time for another call. We go to Gavin in Pensacola, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Um, yes, I met you when you were in Pensacola years and years ago. And, oh, great. Uh, always impressed uh, to uh, continue with uh, your ministry, and uh, what a wonderful thing to see the outreach uh, to both uh, companies. So uh, I wanted to get your um, uh, take on what we are doing with uh, Doug Hamp, Doug Krieger, Chris Stanley on this Commonwealth of Israel um, uh, movement, more or less, in which uh, through Ephesians 2, we're talking about how uh, we were once aliens, strangers from the covenants of pro- strangers from the Commonwealth of Israel, but now through the blood of Christ, we're brought nigh. And so this, to me, uh, as we're working through this, seems to be a wonderful peacemaker uh, to head off some of the anti-Semitism, the jealousy that is uh, rising up inside the church today. And I wonder if you've uh, had any uh, chance to sort of uh, uh, have any thoughts about that uh, particular perspective. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar in depth with everything that you're speaking of, but number one, when the church recognizes the Jewish roots of its faith, that's a healthy thing. When, when the church recognizes God's eternal purposes for Israel, that's a healthy thing. When the church thinks that it is Israel or has become Israel, is the new Israel, is the spiritual Israel, that becomes a dangerous thing because it ends up displacing the, the calling and purpose of the Jewish people themselves. Uh, and if it goes in the way of saying that, that Israel has a way of salvation outside of the Messiah, that's erroneous. But, but to recognize the drawing near, to dr- recognize that in Jesus, Jew and Gentile become one, and with that, to yeah. labor together for the nations and for Israel and have a desire to, to bless Israel, not curse, that's all good and healthy. Yeah, so uh, you'd be happy with the movement towards uh, the idea of a one new man in Christ, uh, all one in Christ Jesus, uh, and that particular emphasis. Uh, yeah. Uh, this us and them attitude. We, we in the uh, Commonwealth of Israel are against replacement theology and the dispensational theology, which shunts off the Jewish house into a fog bank and uh, has no plan or sees no uh, end-time reconciliation. Of course, we're, we're post-tribbers, and so we see our responsibility to our Jewish uh, brethren and them to us as we come to the, to the end of the age. In other Got words, it. The, the two sticks were coming together, you know, Ezekiel 37. Yeah, listen, I, I appreciate what you're presenting and how you're presenting it. I don't see the two sticks as being Gentile believers and Israel um, in context in Ezekiel. But in terms of the spirit of what you're saying and doing, yes, the one, the key thing is this one new man in Messiah, one you, you, humanity in Jesus the Messiah. That's the key. Hey, God bless. Thank you. Another program powered by the Truth Network.